Who's glad to be in church today? Come on. A few of you are glad to be in church today. Good morning, Lakeview Church. It is so good to be with you. Just want to take a moment, welcome all of you here, uh, especially those of you who are here for the first time. We're so glad that you're here. And I want to take a moment, just look right in that camera and welcome each and every one of you who are joining us online. Whether you're joining us live in this moment or on demand sometime later, we are so very glad that you've carved space out of your day, your week, your weekend to be here with us. So thank you so much for joining us. Congregation, can we welcome those who are joining us online? I want to just take a moment and say how uh, excited I am to be back on the stage preaching. It's been a, about a seven-week break for me, and uh, before I go any further in this service, I want to just give honor where honor is due. Over the last seven weeks, you've heard messages, biblical messages, powerful messages, life-transforming messages from our pastoral team. And Pastor Jared, Pastor Christian, and Pastor Jessica have just done an amazing job of sharing God's word with us. And I want you to honor them and thank them for their ministry to us. Over these last seven weeks, we married off one of our kids. We went on vacation. We had a reception for the kid we married off and his new bride. We moved our daughter into her room at college it has been a busy seven weeks, but during that seven weeks, I've spent time studying and preparing messages for this fall, and I'm super excited about where we're going to be heading over the next five months. As Pastor Jared said, we begin tomorrow with uh, the most important part of our church, and that is prayer. And I, I cannot emphasize this point enough to let you know that all the stuff that we do, if we do not have the power of God alive and active and at work in the things that we do, we are just wasting our time with religious activity. And it means nothing and it accomplishes nothing. But when the power of God breathes life into what we do, lives are changed. People become different. They become better. They become who God wants them to be. Marriages are restored. Lives are put back together. Families are healed and made whole. People begin to become what God wants them to be. And I'm not interested in pastoring a church, and you're not interested in going to a church where the power of God isn't at work. And so we need to be people of prayer. And that's why we do 21 days of prayer. And so I'm inviting you. And an invite is really too soft of a word. I'm challenging you, throwing down the gauntlet, whatever, whatever term would get you most energized to be here tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I want you to be here in this room because we are going to seek God with fervency and with intensity. We're going to cry out to God and ask him to move in our lives, in our church, in our community, and in our world. And listen... We need a move of God. We need a move of God in our day. And we need to be people who cry out to him. So I want to encourage you to be with us tomorrow, 21 days of prayer, 6 a.m. right here in the sanctuary. And we'll be here every day during the week. On Saturdays, we'll be here at 9. And then, of course, on, in our Sunday morning services, we'll give attention to prayer as we always 
do. In September, I'm going to be sharing a, a series of messages with you on the life and leadership of Joshua. I've been studying Joshua over these summer months, and so we're going to dig into what that transition of leadership looked like between Moses and Joshua and how Joshua led God's people into the next season that God had prepared for his people. And as we study the life and leadership of Joshua, we're really going to ask God to help us understand what does it look like for Lakeview Church to step into the next season that God has for us as a congregation. So we're going to be doing that in September and October. In November, I'm going to be sharing a series of messages called I Thank God. And each week, we're going to look at a different characteristic or attribute of God and the blessings that come to our lives because of who God is in that area. And we're going to give God thanks and praise for who he is and for what he does in our lives. And, and then in December, I know none of you are thinking about Christmas yet. Maybe a couple of you are. Um, I'm thinking about Christmas and uh, I'm super excited about what we're going to be doing uh, this Christmas for our Christmas message series. It's going to be called Christmas Conversations. And each week, I'll be joined by four or five special guests on the platform with me, and we're actually going to have a conversation together about a theme related to Christmas. And at the end of each one of those conversations, I'll take just a few minutes, and I'll really just kind of summarize what we've talked about in the conversation and read a passage of scripture to help bring a biblical principle to that theme related to Christmas. And I'm excited because I believe it's going to help us truly enter into the meaning and celebration of what Christmas is. And so I want to just encourage you to be praying about our fall ministry. We've got a lot of great things planned, and it's going to be a wonderful time. God's going to do a work in our lives. But enough about what's coming next. I want to talk about where we are right now. We're starting a brand new message series today called The Game of Life. And earlier this summer, as I was beginning to study for these fall messages, I, uh, I was praying one day about August and 21 days of prayer and what we would be talking about during that time. And as I was doing that, this image just came to my mind, this literally this box. I, uh, this sits in our game closet in our family room at home and and uh, I was praying, and I literally just had this image come to my mind. I had no idea what that had to do with August or church, but I just could not get this image out of my mind. And so I went home, and one of the study days I had, I, I, if, my parents, if, if my parents could have seen me, they would have thought I was a little kid um, because I literally had spread out the entire game uh, in my home office, and I was sitting on the floor, and I had all the pieces out, and I was looking at the game, and I was thinking about, what does this have to do with our church in this fall? And as I was thinking about the game of life, I started to realize that the creators of the game of life were thinking a lot about real life, and that there are lots of aspects of this game that, though it can't mirror real life exactly, there are lots of aspects of this game which really speak to us about things that we deal with in real life. For example, you have to make decisions in the game of life, just like you do in real life. Are you going to go to college? Or are you going to pick a career? And if you pick a career, what career? At certain points in the game, you have to decide if you're going to go this way or that way. You have to decide if you want to play the stock market. You have to decide if you want to buy insurance, what kind of house you want to have. 
You have to make all of these decisions. And when you get to the very end of the game, you have to look at all that you've collected and decide, do I have enough money to win the game? And if so, you retire in millionaire acres or millionaire states, whatever it's called. And, and, then, and then if you don't think you have enough money, then you go to countryside acres. It's like real life, right? And, and so there's lots of decisions that you make in the game, just like you do in real life. In, in the game, you have, to, you have to actually manage money. There, there's money that, that changes hand in the game. You get money, you collect money, you pay money, and you have to make sure that you have enough money so that when you get to the end, you can actually retire. You've got enough to, to finish the game, right? That's a little bit like real life, isn't it? You have to navigate relationships in the game. There's a place where you have to stop and you have to get married. You gotta put that little peg in your car, right? And, and, then, and then you might have other times where you land on a spot and surprise, you've got twins, right? Real life's a little bit like that too, right? And, and then of course, you're playing with people that you know theoretically, right, your, your family or, or friends, people that are close to you. And, but, but while you know them and you love them, during the game, they're competition, right? Because the goal is to have more money than them, so you win. And for all of you who say that you're just playing the game to have fun, that's silly. <laughs> Don't ever say that. It is always more fun to win. So if you're playing to have fun, you ought to play to win. I had a little league coach who said, other coaches out here will tell you that we're out here to have fun, and we are. But the last time I checked, losing isn't fun. So we're out here to win. And I love that coach. Right? You ought to play to win. And, and so you got to navigate the relationships as you're playing with the people you love but you're competing against them, right? And then one of the things that's true in this game, which is also true in real life, is that sometimes life throws you a curveball. In the game, there are spaces where you lose your career. You gotta switch and find a new one. Sometimes you land on spots and you gotta pay money for certain things. Like, for example, if you wanna get your tattoos removed, it'll cost you $100,000 in the game. There's an actual spot that says that. Get tattoos removed, pay $100,000, right? And, and all of these things, like that's a part of the game and it's fun, but the reality is, is that we're sailing along in life and we face setbacks. We get knocked out of the job we thought we were gonna have for a while, or we get a bad report from the doctor, or we face a relationship strain that we thought that relationship was always gonna be strong, and now it seems like it's pulling apart, and, and we face those setbacks. What do we do when those things come our way? In this message series, we're gonna talk about all of the things that you find in the game of life. Next week, we're going to talk about how do you make decisions, and we're actually going to study the scriptures to really find a seven-step process that will help each and every one of us make decisions that honor God so that we can know we are doing what God wants us to do in those moments when we have to make a decision. 
The next week, we're going to talk about what, it, what we need to know to manage our money in ways that lead us away from the path of worry. I know none of you have ever worried about money, so that message probably won't relate well to you. But, but for, for your friends who worry about money, it will be helpful for you to hear that message on money because God doesn't want to take us into worry. He wants to take us into his provision and his peace. So we're going to talk about that in this series. We're going to talk about what do you do when life throws you a curveball? How, how do you find a way to adjust and adapt so that the curveball doesn't knock you out of the game, but it actually allows you to keep moving forward, bringing glory and honor to God, even when life isn't going the way you thought it would go. And then we're going to finish the series on September 3rd by talking about how to navigate relationships in this world so that our relationships honor God and reflect him in all that we do. And so I'm excited about this series because I think it will touch on aspects of our lives that we all deal with. And so I want to just encourage us as we walk into this series just to be open to what God might say to us, how God might teach us, and how God might lead us through this series. This morning, we're going to start by talking about the object of the game. When you open up the box and you begin to set it up, one of the things that you no doubt will have to do at some point is you'll have to take out the instructions, and you need to read the instructions because you got to know like how much money to give to people who are starting the game and how does the game work and when do you have to do certain things. And there are certain aspects of the game that you're going to need to look at and figure out in the rules. But, but when you pick the rules up, the instructions up, the very first thing that you see right after you read how many players can play in this game is you see the object of the game the object of the game. And this is the most important thing because the rules and the instructions don't mean anything unless you understand what's the object. How do you win? What is it like to get to the end and say, okay, I actually won this game. In order to, to know that, you need to understand the object so that you can actually play the game to win. The object of the game of life says this, collect money and life tiles and have the highest dollar amount at the end of the game. Collect money and life tiles and have the highest dollar amount at the end of the game. That's the object of the game of life. And, and as we think about real life, the reality is, is it is even more important for us to understand the object of the game when we're talking about real life. Because the world will tell you all sorts of things that, that are, are meant to define the object of the game. For example, the world will tell you that the object of the game of life is for you to be known. And so if, if you think that's the object of the game, you'll manage your life in such a way that you're always striving to be known. You're always looking for your 15 minutes of fame so that you can be known, so that you can win the game. If you think that's the object, you'll live your life that way. 
If you think the object of the game is to have the highest status or the most power, then you will organize your life in such a way as to get position so that you can have power and you can wield that over other people. If you set that as the object of your game, you will live your life towards that end. If you think it's about collecting the most money or having the most stuff or the coolest house or the best tools, whatever you set as the object of the game, you will then organize your life to live that way. And so as we begin this series, before we get into all of the other stuff that we're going to talk about in this series, it's really important for us to just clarify what it means for us to win, not in the game of life, but in real life. Because whatever you establish as the object of the game, that is how you will play the game. That's how you will organize your life. And it would be the worst thing ever to get to the end of your life and realize, as Stephen Covey says, that this entire time you were climbing that ladder, it was leaning against the wrong wall. We have to know what the object of the game is so we can organize our lives towards that end and then live our lives in a way to win. So what does it mean for us to win in real life? As I thought about this, there are lots of places that we could go in the Bible to, to help, the, help define what it means to win in real life. But one passage kind of just stood out to me above all of the others that I studied for this message. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, and it's just three verses in that chapter, verses 6 through 8. Now, this passage is written by one of my favorite leaders in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. Paul is one of the greatest leaders in the Bible because he was used by God to take the message of Jesus beyond the nation of Israel to everyone else in the world, to make sure that the message of Jesus, which was rooted in Israel, to take that to all of the Gentiles. And it's interesting when you study the life of Paul because Paul did not begin as someone who wanted to advance the gospel. Paul began as someone who wanted to kill the gospel. In fact, he was known for persecuting people who believed in Jesus. And then on the road to Damascus, God changed Paul's life. He turned him around. He made him into a different kind of person. And then he called Paul to be a messenger, a missionary, to take the gospel to other people. And in fact, Paul becomes so powerful in this mission that God has called him to that he travels around as a missionary to all of these cities in the first century and he delivers the gospel and begins the church and then as he travels on his missionary journeys, he writes letters back to these churches where he has served. Letters that are meant to instruct and to guide and to lead the church to become what God wants the church to be. And that's why most of the New Testament is written by Paul, because these letters that he wrote to the churches were captured and, and have found their way into the scriptures, and they give guidance to the church even to this very day. Paul wrote a lot of letters to churches, but he also wrote letters to young leaders. And, and there's one young leader in particular that he wrote two letters to. His name is Timothy. And Paul writes to this young 
leader named Timothy to say, Timothy, here's some things I need you to know. Here's some things I need you to do. Here's some wisdom gained from experience that I need you to understand so that Timothy, as you lead the church after I'm gone, you'll lead it in a faithful way. And right in the second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul is reflecting on his life. And he's really reflecting on what it's like to be at the end of his life. And this is what he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. One translation says, The time of my death is approaching. He says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. There are a couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, Paul is, is coming to the end of his life. He doesn't know the day he's going to die. He, God hasn't revealed that to him, but he knows it's getting close. He knows he's approaching that finish line, the race that he's been running, and he's thinking about his life. No doubt, he's thinking back to the beginning of his journey when, when he grew up as really a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in the book of Philippians. He, he was of the right tribe, and he had the, the right religious focus as he was growing up, and he, he makes a big deal about all of that in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anybody has reasons to be proud, if anybody has reasons to boast about their heritage, Paul says, I have more. I've got my stuff together. You ought to see my resume. But he comes to a place where after his conversion, he recognizes, you know what? All of that doesn't mean anything. Because there's one thing that matters more, knowing Christ the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering so that somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, Paul says in Philippians chapter three. No doubt Paul, as he's nearing the end of his life, is thinking about all of his journey, that conversion experience, all that God had led him to do, all of the missionary journeys, all the places he's preached, all the trouble he's had to deal with. There are places where he says, I, I was twice shipwrecked. I've been beaten 40 times minus one. That was what Roman law required, that if you were going to be beaten, you'd be beaten 40 lashes minus one. 39 times you'd be hit with that whip. Paul says, I, I've been there. I've done that. He was bitten by snakes. He was thrown in prison. He was chained to prison guards. Paul, Paul had not just had a rosy, wonderful life. But he had served God and he had been faithful to God. And he gets to the end of his journey. The finish line is approaching. He's imagining himself crossing the line, feeling that tape hit his chest as a runner coming across the line. And he's thinking back about his life and he's wondering to himself, have I lived the kind of life that will allow me to win when I cross the line? 
And as he's thinking about coming to the end of his journey, thinking about what it's like to finish, he realizes in that moment that there is a day in the not too distant future for him where he's gonna cross the line. And when he does, he is gonna stand in front of Jesus. And when Jesus looks at him, Jesus is gonna say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Here is the prize that I have created for you and I'm awarding that to you. Paul calls it in this passage, the crown of righteousness. And as I was thinking about our time together today, I want to make sure that you know what it means to win in life. And I just want to let you know, winning in life is not about being the most known person or the most powerful person or the most wealthy person in the world. It's not about getting to the end of your life in one piece. That's not, that's not winning. Winning is not getting to the end and having a funeral, having a bunch of people come and say, man, she was a good person. Man, he was a good person. I hope that happens for you, but that's not winning. Winning in life is when you pass from this life to the next one. And when you do and you stand before Jesus, Jesus looks you in the eye and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome, enter in to your master's happiness. Here's the crown of righteousness which I have prepared for you and I wanna award it to you now on this day. That is the prize that we are striving for. And if you have anything else in your mind as the, the goal of life, the object of life, I want to just encourage you to just push that other goal down and lift up your eyes to see the real goal of life. To press on for that for which Jesus has taken hold of your life. To, to make it all the way to the end and hear the well done. That's what it means to win in life. And Paul is thinking about the end of his life and he says that I'm going to win. When I, when I think about my life and how I've lived my life here, I know that when I get there, I will have won because I've lived my life in relationship with God for his purpose and for his plan. And I have allowed myself to be guided and directed by God's spirit into the righteousness that God has for me and away from the things that he doesn't want for me so that I can become everything he's planned for my life to be. I know I'm gonna get the crown of righteousness because of how I've lived my life in relationship with God and for God. And if I could just pause this sermon for a moment and just look each and every one of you in the eye and just tell you what I want for your life. I just want each and every one of you to know from the youngest person in this room to the oldest person in this room. I just want you to know more than anything else, I want you to win in life. Not the way the world defines it, but the way Paul defines it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want each and every one of you to have a moment when you stand before Jesus someday. And we don't know when that will be. For some of us, it could be in a moment. I was driving on the bypass this morning before any of you were awake. And there was only one other human being awake. And he almost ran into me on the bypass. 
And I thought that was my moment. I thought I wasn't even going to get to preach this sermon. I, I thought I was gone. Fortunately, he stopped about that far from hitting me. And I literally drove the rest of the way to this church, thanking God for his sovereign hand of protection. Because I really don't know how he did not just plow right into my car. We do not know when that finish line will happen for us. We are not guaranteed another second. But whenever you face that moment and you pass from this life to the next more than anything else, I want you to stand before Jesus and hear those beautiful, wonderful words. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what I want for you. That's what I pray for you. That's what I long for you to experience. And so you might be sitting there right now thinking, so how do we do that? I'm so glad you asked. I've been waiting all summer for you to ask that question so I can answer that with the rest of this sermon. I think the answer is actually found in verse seven. In verse six, Paul says, the time of my departure is getting close. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And, and, and in verse eight, he says, I'm gonna get the crown of righteousness, which the Lord has prepared for me. How do we, how do we get there? How do, we, how do we approach the end of our lives knowing that we are winning and that we're going to win and we're gonna get the crown of righteousness? I think the answer is found in verse seven. Paul says, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. I want to look at each of those three phrases. And I want to give you a key word for each one of them this morning. And I want to unpack them to help us live the kind of lives so that we can win. We can get to the end and know that we're going to get the crown of righteousness. And the first word I want to give you is the word stand. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. And the word that I want you to write down in your notes is the word stand. And here's, here's why I want us to focus in on this word. I'm going to show you in, over the next couple of minutes why this word stand is a biblical word, and it's a word that we are called to do as followers of Jesus. But, but this word is important for us because what I need you to recognize is that in real life, the life that you and I are living, God has a plan and a purpose and a direction for our lives. He has something he wants us to experience. When God created you, he had a dream in mind for who you would become and what you would accomplish. And when God thinks about you, when God's heart is, is, is focused on you, I'm telling you what he is imagining, what he's dreaming, what he's thinking about is who he wants you to be and what he wants you to do. But as surely as there is a God who has a plan and a purpose for your life, there is an enemy that will do whatever he can do to keep you from living the life that God has for you to live. And so you need to understand that if you're going to win in life, it begins with a recognition that there is a competition, a battle that is literally happening for your life. There is a God who has good plans for you, plans to prosper you and to give you a hope and a future. And some of you need to hear that today. Because, because you don't believe God has good plans for you. I'm telling you, God has the very best for you. 
And it's, it's wonderful when you think about that verse of scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, give you hope, give you a future. We, we maybe have heard that. Maybe if you graduated from high school, you got that in a graduation card. We like to use that verse for graduates. God has plans for your life. Here's the beauty, though, about that verse. It was written to the nation of Israel while they were in exile. Do you know why they were in exile? Because they sinned against God. They heard the most hopeful words from God when they were at their lowest. They were in a foreign land. They didn't know if they were ever going to get back to their land. They didn't ever know if they'd ever worship in the temple again, if they've ever become the people God wants them to be again. And God writes a letter through the prophet Jeremiah to God's people. And in the middle of that letter, he says, I've got plans for you. If you're here today and you feel like your life is at the lowest, I just got good news for you. God still has plans for your life. He'll redeem you. He'll restore you. He'll lift you up. He'll turn your life around. And he wants to do great things in and through your life. But just as surely as that's true, there is an enemy. I want to show this to you in scripture so that you understand I'm not just making this up. I'm not just sharing what I think. This is, this is biblical. And, and we're going to start with the teaching of Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks to his, his disciples about being, uh, he's talking to them about how he's a shepherd. He says, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep. And, and, and when I speak, my sheep know my voice and I call to them and they, they know that I'm calling them and they follow me and I lead them where I want them to go. And in the middle of this teaching, Jesus says, I just want you to know the thief comes to steal to kill and to destroy. But I've come, Jesus says, that you might have a rich and satisfying life. In one translation, it says that, he would, that we would have life and we would have it to the full. And I just want you to see in Jesus' own teaching, he's laying out the fact that there are two directions your life could go, that there's a plan God has for you, but there's a plan the enemy has for you. And the plan the enemy has for you is to basically disrupt and destroy everything that God has intended for your life. The battle is real. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter six, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, said that you should pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into doing the things that you don't want us to do. And would you deliver us from the evil one? Jesus is again in prayer, recognizing that there's an enemy and he wants to destroy your life. This is why 21 days of prayer is so important because every day in 21 days of prayer, we confront the enemy in prayer. We pray against the enemy's plans for our lives. We pray against the enemy's plans uh, against our church. We pray against the enemy's plans for our community. And I will assure you, the enemy has plans for your life. He has plans for our church and he has plans for our community. And we are going to fight the good fight. We're not going to let him just do whatever he wants to do. We're going to stand our ground against him. Jesus teaches about this battle, but so does Peter. Peter teaches about it in one of his letters, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is what he says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. 
I think what Peter's saying here is spiritual warfare, working, working against the enemy and making sure that we are giving ourselves to God's plan. This is something every believer experiences. This is just part of the game of life. And you better take your stand. Now, back to Paul, who also writes about spiritual warfare in one of his letters to the church in Ephesus. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter six. He's wrapping up the letter and this is what he says. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. One translation says, after you've done everything else, stand. That's why I wanted to give you that word today. There is a real battle and it's raging around you. And I'm not one of these people who believes that there's a demon under every rock, but maybe every other one. I think the spiritual battle is more real than we give it credit for. And we go through our lives, and if we don't pay attention to the battle, we're not fighting, we're not standing, we're not, we're not actually confronting the enemy, we're just letting the enemy wreak havoc in our lives. I just want to call us, church, enough, enough of that. Let's be fighters. Let's stand, not against flesh and blood. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the evil rulers in high places and it's time for us to take our stand. I wanna encourage you to do that. I don't think you can win in life without fighting the good fight. And I think the good fight is to say, I want all of the life that Jesus has for me and I do not wanna let the enemy have any foothold in my life. Amen? I wanna build your faith with just one more verse and then we're gonna move on because we got other things to cover before this service is over. It's been seven weeks. I got a lot of content, okay? <laughs> One more verse, 1 John 4, 4. You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them. And here's, here's what I want to build your faith with today. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The battle is real, the enemy is real, he's vicious and he's sinister. He wants to knock you out of the game. But the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And he has already won the victory. We are not playing on a losing team. We are playing on a winning team. And we ought to have hope in that reality today. So I want to encourage you to stand. Secondly, I want to encourage you to contribute. That's the second key word from this passage. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I think when Paul's talking about the race, he's talking about us living our lives in such a way that we fulfill the purpose that God has for us. 
When God called Paul into a relationship with himself and then gave him a mission to take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles, Paul received that mission and he took it seriously and he went everywhere the spirit of God led him to go and he took the gospel and started the church wherever he found himself. He was faithful to the purpose that God had given him. And so when he's getting to the end of his life, he can say, I have finished the race. I've, I've run the race that God has marked out for me. And here's what I want you to know today. You have a race too. God has marked out a race for you to run. And you need to run your race. You don't, you don't need to let someone else run your race for you. You need to run your race. Because God gave you that race to run. And in the same way, you shouldn't be trying to run someone else's race. Because if you're trying to run someone else's race, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to be a poor imitation. And while you're trying to run someone else's race, the world is missing out on the race that you were intended to run. You need to finish the race that God has given you. And when we think about purpose, I think it really comes down to understanding two parts of our purpose. And we've talked about this before, but it's important for us to understand it. So I'm going to talk about it again today. You have two parts that make up your purpose, the race that God has for you to run. And the first part is true for every single one of us in this room who are followers of Jesus Christ. We are all called to go out and make disciples. That is our primary calling. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus makes this really, really clear. He says, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So now go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. What is Jesus saying to us as his followers? He's saying our primary calling is to go out and make disciples. You say, what does that mean? It means if you know Jesus, your job is to help other people know Jesus. If Jesus has changed your life, your job is to help other people experience the transforming power of Jesus. If you've come to love Jesus and, and you're serving Jesus and you're becoming like Jesus, your job is to help other people know Jesus and become like Jesus. That's what it means to make a disciple. And there is not a single follower of Jesus that is exempt from that call. You don't get to say, well, that's for the A team. And I'm on the B team, so I'm just going to sit over here and just show up at church on Sunday. No, we're all called, if we are followers of Jesus, to be involved in making disciples. If you want to finish the race that God has given you to run, you have to say, God, help me make disciples of people who do not know you. It's what we're called to. But then everybody has a second calling. And this calling, I just call it your personal sweet spot. Because God created you. He put you together in your mother's womb. And, and when he put you together, gave you personality and skills and gifts and abilities and strengths. And there are things that you can do that no one else can do. There are contributions that you're called to make that no one else can make. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that you are God's masterpiece. You're his work of art. And he has actually prepared good works for you to do 
Long before you were ever even born, God was thinking about you and preparing good works that he wanted you to accomplish. You're called by God to go do those good works. And here's the thing, if you go do those good works, God's gonna, God's gonna use you to make this world different and better. So if you're a teacher, if that's what God's gifted you to do, man, teach to the very best of your ability. Be the best teacher that you can possibly be. Don't leave anything behind. Give it all you've got. Leave it all on the field, right? If God's equipped you for that, do that to the very best of your ability. And if you're a business owner, do that to the best of your ability. Design that business, build that business, grow that business. Employ people, invest in their lives, make a difference in them and in this community and in our world. If you're an artist, make the very best art that you can make. If you work in the service industry, would you please serve us well? Be kind and smile and teach all the other people you work with to smile too when they're serving us, right? Give your very best whatever God has created you to do and here's where you make a real difference in the world. When you are doing your personal sweet spot to the very best of your ability as God enables you, you will have more and more and more opportunities to make disciples. And when you bring those two things together, your primary calling and your secondary calling, that's when you live a life that makes a difference. And the world is transformed as you contribute. I'm gonna encourage you, finish the race that God has given you by finding your purpose and fulfilling it. And then thirdly, believe. Paul says, I've fought the good fight of faith. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. There are lots of things that we could talk about here because faith really is the currency of relationship and you can't win in life without a relationship with God. You can be the best person that anyone has ever met, kind, generous, loving, but if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you still won't win. Because at the end of the day, we don't win because of how good we are or the good things that we do or how, how many people know us or how kind we are or generous we are, even how religious we are. We only win because we have a relationship with God. And the currency of that relationship is faith. And, and, and the reason Paul talks about faith as he's ending his life is because he understands that faith is the ball game. In fact, if you read Paul's letters, he comes back to faith over and over and over again. He goes all the way back to Abraham and says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The only way that you can be made right with God is through faith. And here's the reality today. You and I, we have a problem. And the problem is this, our sin separates us from God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. I've sinned and so have you. So did Mother Teresa and so did Billy Graham. There's not a single person who's ever lived other than Jesus who hasn't sinned. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And the worst part of this problem is that there's no payment that we can make for our sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin or the payment of sin is death. This is, this is how it works. There's always going to be a payment for our sin. And if we're gonna pay it, that means spending an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. 
Hell's not a place that God sends us because he's mean or he's condemning or he's hateful. God, God allows us to spend an eternity in hell because we have to pay the price for our sin. But if we don't wanna pay the price for our sin, we need to find someone else who will. And that's what the best part of Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made a way for our sin to be paid for. That's why Jesus is the solution to our problem. Our sin separates us from God, but Jesus brings us back into relationship with God. Jesus comes and he gives his life for us. This is why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Not because Jesus is trying to be exclusive and, and, and get rid of a whole bunch of people. No, Jesus is just saying, I'm the only one who could and I have. And if you'll just come to me, I'll get you connected to the Father. This is why in Acts chapter four, verse 12, it says there's no other name given under heaven by which mankind can be saved. Jesus is the name because he's the solution. But in order for us to ever receive that solution, we have to put our faith in Jesus. John 1.12 says to those who believed in him, to those who accepted him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And Romans 10 says it this way. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. And this is what he says. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that, that he's been raised from the dead, then you will be saved. You see, in order for us to receive Jesus, we have to put our faith in him. And I know many of you in this room have already done that. And today, I just want to encourage you to remember that winning in life is built on that faith. It is not faith at the beginning and then your good works after that. It is always, only, ever faith. Jesus is your savior, period. And we ought to always be praising him for that work. But some of you in this room today have never accepted Jesus. And right now, he is knocking on the door of your heart. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone would open that door, I will come in. And we will begin to have a relationship together. And I'm telling you right now, if you want to win in life, it all begins right there. At the moment of faith where a relationship starts. So this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, as we begin to move to the end of this service, I wanna just encourage each and every one of you right now to just think about where you stand with God, particularly as it relates to faith. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you right now in this moment living in that faith today? And if not, is he knocking on the door of your heart right now, asking you to let him in? And if he is, all I want to ask you to do, and no one's looking around, I'm not going to embarrass you, I'm not going to call you forward. I just want you to simply acknowledge, yes, I think he's knocking on the door of my heart, and I want to open the door, and I want to let him in today. If that is you, all I want you to do right where you're at is just raise your hand and I want you to raise it up high so that I can see you and just acknowledge you and pray for you. Would there be anyone today who says, he's knocking on the door of my heart and I want to receive him? There's a hand that's up and the others. Yeah, I see these hands. I see that hand. I see that hand. You guys can put your hands down. Anybody else? Anybody else? 
If you raised your hand, I want you just to pray these words and you can pray them out loud if you feel comfortable doing it or you can just pray them quietly right where you're at. God, pray these words. God, I thank you that you provided a way for me to have my sins forgiven. And Jesus, I want to put my faith in you right now. And I want to begin a relationship with you in this moment. Jesus, forgive my sins. Jesus, restore my relationship with the Father. Jesus, make me brand new. Transform my life and help me to run the race that's been marked out for me and help me to fight the good fight so that someday I can stand in your presence and hear you say, well done. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, several people across this room just raised their hands and prayed that prayer. So can we celebrate the fact that people have just come in to the family of God? I'm gonna invite Pastor Jared to come back and give us some instructions to help us close out our service today.